Well, good morning, everyone. And I'm glad you're here. And uh, what a time to celebrate the incarnation, the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, isn't it? Uh, and uh, those of you who are going to be in the area or around tomorrow evening, we're having a Christmas Eve service. And we're going to be talking about the reason Jesus came and just singing all of the old traditional hymns and finishing off with Silent Night, you know, lighting candles, setting people on fire, you know, all those <laughs> kinds of wonderful things. Um, we have moved away from doing our uh, study in Exodus just for today. And as you know, uh, Pastor Frank Jr. in the first service, he taught why Jesus came the first time in the Incarnation and I'm going to be teaching why he has to come again, according to Scripture and the reasons. Now, we have on the table out there, and uh, I don't even know where my darling wife, Vi, found this, but it's years ago, and uh, we call it our rapture calling card. We have it in a frame, and it's basically saying, um, to whom it may concern, and it talks about, if you find our house empty, where we are with the Lord. And um, also... We have a, a booklet that's free out there, too. And my wife doesn't like me to say this, but the Lord put it on her heart to write this. And it's that you may know. And it's um, all about Christian salvation. If you have any questions of the reason and why we should be saved, there's a free book, booklet out there that you may know. So if you would open your Bibles along with me. And where we're really going to be concentrating today is Ezekiel 38. But let's start off with prayer. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name because there truly is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And when we think of the incarnation and the very reason you came, that we might be justified, that we might be sanctified, that we might be eventually glorified, it just blesses us to realize that you paid the ultimate price that all of our sins might be forgiven. But then if that weren't enough, you've given us a promise that you're coming back for us. And Father, I pray that as we cover these portions of, portions of Scripture, you would use it to encourage us, to enlighten us, and to prepare us for that day. And so, Father, anoint and use me to minister to these, your people. I know on my own I have nothing worth saying, but your word is just full of truth. Your word is exciting. Your word brings satisfaction and peace. And so, Father, as we break open your word this morning, I pray that it would minister to each one of our hearts. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I don't know what I did with my glasses. I can endeavor to see without them. I think what I actually did is I took them in to clean them. And I do that all the time. Yeah, you can go look. These are special bifocals. See, I can't start without my glasses because I can't think without them. Ah, these right here. I know. I've got reading glasses, computer glasses. I call these my preaching glasses because they're bifocals so I can see the word and see you. Okay, um, you know, so often when we think of Jesus, the second person of the triune nature of the Godhead, we think of his relationship with man in the incarnation only. In other words, when he came to earth as the perfect Lamb of God, he was incarnated into the flesh in order to be our perfect sacrifice. Oftentimes, that's the only time we think he interacted with man. In a fleshly form. Not in the flesh, but in a fleshly form. Jesus appeared in a fleshly form throughout Scripture more than 50 times. And it's what we call a theophany or a Christophany. It, that means a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And every time Jesus Christ appeared, it was for the reason of encouraging man... And pointing to his ultimate, you know, sacrifice, his ultimate coming, as in Isaiah 53, that he would be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the whole world. And um, we have to remember that Jesus is the creator. 
What does it tell us in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. The Greek there is logos, was the logos. The logos was with God. The logos was God. And it tells us that through him, all things were created. So Jesus is the creator of this universe and of this world in particular as it relates to us. And therefore, he has a design for his special creation because man is the only creation of God that was made in his image and in his likeness. Did you know that? And did you know that that portion of Scripture is actually uh, speaking of the Trinity? Because it actually, it, what we read, if we read it carefully, it says, let us, Elohim, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. It's a triune nature of God. You see, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are involved in everything. They are one. God is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we realize that it is Jesus Christ, God the Son, who created everything that there is, then we also have to realize that there are many times that he interacted with man in a fleshly form. As I said, not the flesh, but in a, a fleshly form. And, um, like, and there are more than 50. I'm just going to give you a few. If you want to take some notes, you can. We know in Genesis 3.8 that whenever it talks about God appearing to man, it's always the second person. It's always Yeshua. It's always a, uh, a Christophany. It's Jesus Christ. And we know God walked in the, cool, in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. He physically walked with them. And uh, also in Genesis 4, 6 through 7, we know that the Lord even spoke to Cain. Now, Cain is someone who offered uh, a wrong sacrifice to God. Instead of a blood offering, he offered, you know, the fruit of his crops. And God said to him, Cain, you know, this isn't a right sacrifice. I can't accept it. And Cain became very angry and his face was downcast. And God appeared to him and spoke to him and said, Cain, why is your face downcast? All you have to do is what's right and you'll be accepted. But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at the door and it desires to have you. But the Lord, of course, was praying for him. And then we also find in Genesis 6.13, God personally appeared to Noah and spoke to him about the ark and delivering his family from the, um, from the flood. And then in Genesis 12.1, Genesis 18.10, and Genesis 17.18, we have uh, God appearing to Abram. That was before his name was changed to Abraham. God physically appeared to him. In Genesis 16.7-8, God even appeared to Hagar. And remember, he uh, asked her, Why, what are you doing? Why are you running away? And told her to go back. And she was uh, the mother of Ishmael. And remember, she was the um, Egyptian slave that uh, Sarah told her husband to take. And um, we also have in Genesis 32:30, God appeared to Jacob. And to Moses in Exodus 3, uh, 4, in a personal way, in a physical way. And in Genesis 20, or in Numbers 20, verses 7 through 8. He also appeared to Joshua as the commander of the host in Joshua 5:15, and he appeared to Daniel when he came across, you know, the river in Daniel 10:4 through 6. And the only point I'm making is that God has always been involved with mankind in a literal way, and the reason is is that man is His special creation, and man was designed and made for one reason. To worship the Lord. You know, oftentimes I'll ask people, it's, it's kind of a trick question and I know, but I'll ask people, I'll say, what is your greatest responsibility as a Christian? And most people will say, to save souls, to tell people about Jesus Christ. And I say, no, that might be your second, but it's not your first. Your first responsibility is to worship the Lord. Worship the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your soul. That's the most important thing we can do. As a matter of fact, one day when the Lord takes us to be with him in heaven, that's going to be our primary responsibility, simply worshiping him. You know why we worship him? He's worthy. Now, even after his resurrection, and I'm sure most of you know this, 
Jesus appeared many times to his disciples and to others besides his disciples. He appeared in his resurrected form. And I won't read them all. There's like 40 I have written here uh, of times that he appeared to his disciples and to others. Now, Jesus made two promises to his church. Okay? We know he came the first time that we might be redeemed, that we might be forgiven, that we might be justified and sanctified. And when we talk about being justified and sanctified, what that simply means is you and I were guilty. We were guilty. And yet we had an advocate who stood on our behalf in our defense who took all the punishment for our sin upon himself that we might be set free. And that's why, you know, the last words that Jesus spoke, and I, we have it on our welcome desk out there, is to telestoy. And it's a legal term, and it means paid in full. He paid the full price for our sin. There's nothing due. There's nothing you can do to add to it. Because if there was, then Jesus wouldn't be Jesus, and his work wouldn't have been complete. There's nothing you can do except receive it. Thank you, Jesus. And the thing that's wonderful is the Bible says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus gave that command to us. And what that means is every day we need the cross of Christ. Every day we need his forgiveness. Every day we need his, you know, his, his grace and mercy to fall mightily upon us. Because we fall to sin, we have difficulties that we deal with. We deal with things in the wrong way. We lose our temper, whatever it might be. Now, <clears throat> what the Lord really impressed on me to focus on this morning was the next prophetic event that's coming our way and maybe sooner than we think because the Lord promised the church two things his appearing and his second coming and you might be thinking aren't they the same no they're not the same his appearing is when he appears in the clouds everyone will see him and he's appearing in the clouds to call his church up to meet him to take them out of the world before his judgment falls on the world and of course it would be against his nature if he didn't do that we the church are called his what? His bride. He's taking his bride out of the world. And I'm going to share some scriptures with you that are proof texts of this. But then he's also going to come again to earth with his bride. And scripture tells us we're going to reign with him, which is beyond my ability even to comprehend. But we have so many things going on in the world today because we're commanded to be aware of the times in which we're living. And I'll be reading verses about that in just a moment. Now, the reason Jesus is coming to take his church out of the world is because his judgment is going to fall in the world. And why is his judgment going to fall in the world? Because this is an evil world. This is a God-hating world that we live in. Thankfully, there are many like us that love Jesus, that love the Lord, and that's why he's taking us out. But his judgment has to fall. You see, if God ju does not judge the, the evilness of this world, then it's not only contrary to his nature, but it's contrary to his sacrifice on the cross. Because we have to realize that discipline goes both ways. For instance, if I'm a parent, which I am, course my youngest is pastor frank who's 43 so i don't have that much influence on him anymore but anyway uh when, when my children were small and they were sitting at the table and eating we would say to them if and if is a conditional conjunction it's a requirement if you eat all your dinner you'll get dessert if you don't eat all your dinner you don't get dessert so in other words for the statement that I made for the command that I gave to my children to be true, I have to give the cake or whatever the dessert is. I don't care what it is, you know, chocolate cake with white icing and the cream filling. That doesn't make any difference to me. But if, if it's a cake, I would say to my children, you know, you eat all your dinner, here's your cake. You deserve it. And if the child who didn't eat their dinner, I said, oh, here's the cake anyway, then there's no justice for the one who obeyed. So, as a good parent, I have to say to the child who did not eat their dinner, you may not have any cake. 
more for me. No, I mean, you may not have any, you may not have any cake. And the reason I would do that isn't because I dislike my child. I love my children. I love my grandchildren even more. But anyway, I love my children. You ever hear that? If I would have known how great grandchildren are, I would have had them first, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, that's right. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, if, if I love my, ch- my child, I have to be willing to show them what they're doing is wrong for the purpose of them learning. You know, it's just like um, last Thursday, I think it was, my, uh, Vi and I, we went shopping with our, our, our granddaughter, and uh, Madison, you know, has her permit now, and she drove everywhere we went, and she did a great job. I only put my foot on the invisible brake once. It's the only time I did it. That's how great she drove. But what a wonderful thing it was, you know, to be with her and to be able to share our love with her, but also to have her be able to kind of show for us around. And so the thing that we need to understand is that everything God does is for a reason to train us and to encourage us. Because if I was driving with Madison and uh, all of a sudden the light turned red, and I know that when the light turns red you're supposed to, stop. And maybe she didn't know that, which she does. She does. But maybe she didn't know that, and we're coming up on on a a light that just turned red, and I don't say anything. Hey, Madison, just do whatever you want. She could become injured, right? So I tell her, don't go through the red light. You need to stop. And so you lay out the rules and regulations because you love your children and you want to protect them. And the same thing is true with the Lord. He lays these things out because he wants to protect us. But because the world is coming to a place where evil is, per, is just pervasive, he's going to judge the world. In fact, I was reading an article yesterday. Some of you might have read it. It was on MSNBC, which is, anyway. And, um, but it was an article saying that in the United States, witchcraft, witchcraft is growing exponentially as church attendance drops. That's an article in a secular, from a secular news agency. Witchcraft is growing. I think we have forgotten what sin is in the church. And, and we're afraid to take a stand. And so I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And it says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow, sounds like today's world, doesn't it? And isn't it amazing that we're living in a time that if you take a stand... For the Bible, I don't want to say a stand against, that's the way it's always expressed. We take a stand for the Bible, we're criticized strongly. As a matter of fact, if I read this verse, this verse of Scripture in some places, it would be considered a hate crime. And I could actually be jailed for it. For instance, this happens all the time in Canada now. Now, because of Christ's love, for his bride, for his church, he's going to be removing us out of this world before his judgment comes. And it's going to be sooner than we think, I believe. Now, the reason he's removing us is because a devastation is coming upon this planet that has never been known before. Scripture says never since the beginning of time, nor ever will again, the kind of devastation is coming. Now, one of the things to keep in mind, because I think this is a word of encouragement, for you when you consider your unsafe family and friends. Many people will come to know Jesus Christ during the tribulation. That's the reason it talks about taking the mark and those who refuse the mark you know, are going to be beheaded for their faith. So many people are going to come to know Jesus. And I think it's, it, it might be because of kooks like us that are telling them about the rapture of the church. And when it finally happens... And there's going to be all kinds of explanations and reasons, you know, aliens took us out or the bad people just disappeared, whatever. I don't know. There's going to be all kinds of explanations. 
But those we've shared the truth with are going to be thinking, no, that's what they talked about. That is, and, and the word rapture is actually never used in Scripture. It's taken from the Latin raptos, which means to be caught up. And we shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. That's where the word raptos in the Latin comes from. But many people are going to be saying, that's what it was. It was, it was that the Christians have been taken out of the world. And many do come to faith during that time. But because it's during the time of God's judgment and tribulation, they'll suffer for their faith. Now, Jesus made a promise to his disciples, and it's a promise that also relates to us, that actually they didn't understand at the time. In fact, if you want to turn quickly to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. And we'll start right off with verse 1. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's actually starting to prepare them for his death on the cross and his resurrection. And he's giving them the promise that he's going to come back. He's going to take them to be with him. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And in your Bible, that's a capital M. And it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about Jehovah and verse 2, in my father's house are many mansions or rooms or apartments. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, listen, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, he hasn't even left yet. He hasn't even died on the cross yet. But he's telling them, I'm going to be gone, but don't worry, I'm coming back for you. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know, Thomas, Doubting Thomas, that's why they call him this. I'm not a Doubting Thomas, I'm a Believing Thomas. But anyway, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, listen, I am, you notice how many times that's in there, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no exceptions comes to the Father except through me. If a person is not a born-again Christian, if they're not a believer in Jesus Christ, they cannot go to heaven. Well, that sounds mean. No, it's not mean. The whole world was already destined to hell. He came and sacrificed his life, gave it you know, as a ransom for our sin, and gave us the free gift of salvation by simply believing what he said and calling upon his name. Wow. Now, we're going to, going to look at a few scriptures that give us the promise that he's taking his church, his bride, out of the world before all these things occur. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, it says, Because you have kept my commands to persevere, listen, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. So he's telling them right off, I'm going to come in order to keep you from all the trials and difficulties of this world. That's why I'm coming back. And then we find in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 34 through 36, but take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day, talking about the rapture, the day of the Lord, it's a capital D in your Bible, come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of God. The word there for escape in the Greek is ekapho. And you know what it means? It means to flee or to vanish. We're going to vanish. In Titus... Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Listen, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. What a promise that is. Well, how is it that we're going to be taken out of this world and go to heaven? We can't go up in our physical form. Well, it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 50 through 55, if you take notes. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruptible inherit incorruptible. Behold, I tell you a mystery. That's taken from the Greek word mysterium. And usually when it's written that way, I tell you a mystery, he's saying something which was once unknown, I'm making, no, making known to you. I tell you a mystery, a mysterium. I'm going to make it known to you now. We shall not all sleep, that means die in the Lord, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Reminds us what we're going to be reading in Thessalonians, the dead are raised first. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Listen, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? You know, when someone we love dies, we cry. It's a natural thing. Even if we know they're believers and we know they're in heaven, we still cry because we miss their physical presence. We miss them being with us. We have to understand it. But one of the main reasons we cry is, is because death was never part of God's plan. And that's why when it says, oh, death, where is your sting? It, it, it is a sting. Oh, death, where is your victory? It's no longer a sting. Death no longer has victory over a person's life anymore because Jesus Christ paid the full price. Therefore, when we die, we're with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain, Paul said. That's the promises we have of God. And now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, why don't you turn to that one? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to be picking up with verse 13. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, picking up with verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant. That means unaware, not understanding. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who fall asleep, those who have died in the Lord, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, listen to this, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So who's God bringing with him from heaven, Jesus bringing with him from heaven at the time of the rapture? The righteous dead, those who died in him. But it's not their bodies, it's their souls he's bringing with him. Because if you pay attention, this portion is so amazing. Verse 15, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who sleep. So at the beginning, in verse 13, he's bringing those who sleep with him from heaven. And now we talk about those who sleep in the ground being raised up. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So their souls, when you die... You go to be with the Lord, you know, in your solely sense. That's who we are. And we're coming. If, you, if you've died with the Lord, you're coming with him into the clouds. And your body is going to be raised up incorruptible, glorified, to meet your soul. And you'll be reunited in the clouds again if you've already died in the Lord. So you're not going to have in heaven, you know, those who have glorified bodies and those who just are soulish. Every believer is going to have their glorified body and their soul together. Um, verse 17, then we who are alive, that's us, hopefully, right now, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. It's talking about that part of the sky, the clouds, uh, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, this brings us to where we are in history right now. You might be thinking, Pastor, why are you getting into all these portions of Scripture about the rapture and, and about the promise of God coming for his church into the world? Because I believe we're right at the doorstep. In Zechariah 12, 2 through 3, 2 through 3 
it tells us that one of the prophetic signs that we look at is Jerusalem, not Israel, Jerusalem becoming a cup of trembling. In other words, it's a, it's a, a contentious argument for all the nations of the world. Jerusalem. On May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation declaring their statehood. On May 14, 2018, Jerusalem was declared by the United States to be, to be recognized as the capital of Israel. Now, it's always been the capital of Israel since they took it in 1967 in the Six-Day War. But now the United States has recognized Jerusalem and moved their embassy there as other countries have now. So Jerusalem is a cup of trembling, just as prophesied in Scripture. Now, what I'm going to share with you now is the most amazing uh, fulfillment of prophecy I've seen in my lifetime. And it should be very sobering to each one of us. And it's from Ezekiel 38. Now, I'm not going to take time to read the whole chapter. I wish I could. Now, understand this. Ezekiel 36 is all about Israel becoming a nation again. They've been scattered. They've been dead throughout the world for 2,000 years. They become a nation again. And that's where we get the song, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. You know, I was out and I saw a great, you know, all these bones and the, leg, the bones came together. It's talking about Israel becoming a nation again. Chapter 37 of Ezekiel is all about their prospering. And chapter 38 and 39 of Ezekiel is all about the beginning of the tribulation to the end of the tribulation. Israel has always been in center stage of all of man's history. Now, I'm going to read a few verses to you because I, I, want to get, I want to have some nations mentioned here that I'm going to give you who they are today. So in Ezekiel 38, starting with verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Thus says, uh, and say, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O God, the prince of, Me, of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all of your army, horses, horsemen, and so forth and so forth. Then if you go down um, to verse 5, it says, it's talking about other nations it will be with Gog and Magog. It says, um, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are all with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops and the house of Togaram, uh, 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 they're with him as well. Many people with you. And then if you go down to verse 8, pick up where it says, In latter years, it's talking about the last days, the times we're living in now. In latter years, you will come into a land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many peoples on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. You know, when the, um, you have to understand, it was in 1917 that the Jews first received the right the Belfort Decree, to start moving back to Israel. But it wasn't until after World War II that the people just started coming in in groves, just, just all kinds of people coming in, to where now Israel is an amazingly established nation. You know, Vi and I have had the privilege of being there three times, and, and it's just such a beautiful nation. And here you have a people. It's never happened before in history. A people that have been scattered all over the world, and have remained an identifiable people for 2,000 years. Brought back into the nation. All ten tribes are represented because through, we have genetic markers through DNA that can determine what tribe they're actually from. They're all, you know, 12 tribes are back in Israel. We even know who the Kenyans are. Those are the priests, the priestly line. They're all there back in Israel now. And Israel's become prosperous. It's amazing. And um, so it talks about they're going to be coming against all these nations coming against Israel in the mountains of Israel. In fact, in verse 9 it says, You will ascend um, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God, On that day 
shall, uh, it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. And it's interesting when you're in Israel, there's no walls around Israel. You have uh, border crossings and so forth. There's no walls. And I will go to a peaceful people. Israel attacks when they've been attacked. They are a peaceful people who dwell in safety, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. And he says, this is the reason you're going to go against Israel, to take plunder and to take booty. Then it goes down in verse 13 and it says, Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, in other words, they're questioning, why, why are you doing this, Russia? Why are you doing this? Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock goods, and to take great plunder? And then it says in verse 15, they're all going to come out of the north to attack Israel. In fact, in verse 16, look what it says. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days, and I will bring you against my land. So the Lord's put the hook in their mouth. He's bringing them in for prophecy to be fulfilled so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. And he's going to be hallowed by the way he destroys them. Go down to verse 19 of Ezekiel 38. For in my jealousy, he's jealous for us. As a good husband is for his wife, he's jealous for us. In my jealousy and in my fire and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down. And it's not just Israel here. If you're reading this, if you're looking at the Hebrew translation from this, it's talking about all mountains. And the mountains uh, shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall. And every wall shall fall to the ground. I will cast the sword against God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And then in verse 22, go down to the part where it says, I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rains, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And then in the last part of verse 23, it says, that Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Well, obviously I don't have time to cover Ezekiel 38, all of it. The point I'm trying to bring out here is that there are a group of nations, prophetically, that are going to gather together in the north to come against Israel, and Almighty God is going to supernaturally intervene. That's what this prophecy is telling us. It's so right there in front of us. And they're going to come against Israel because of their prosperity. And we often don't think of Israel as being prosperous. They're the size of Rhode Island, and they're the 20th, uh, they have the 20th, uh, largest uh, uh, economy in the world. They're number one technologically, by the way. But they're 20th as far as their economy is concerned in Israel. And the thing that's interesting is they have discovered natural gas and oil deposits that are the largest in the world. I don't know how many of you follow the news, but we know that uh, Cyprus and Greece have signed a contract with Israel to run a pipeline so that they would receive natural gas from Israel. Guess who Israel took the contract from? Russia. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Just as the Word of God is telling us here. They are very prosperous. And who are these nations that are mentioned? First, when it talks about uh, God, the Prince of God, it's not talking about a nation. It's talking about a person who is the Prince of God from Magog which, by the way, is Moscow. And you think, you're thinking, how do we get an idea of who these ancient nations are in today's you know, map? All you have to do is go to the table of nations and Noah's sons and where they went. And, you know, you have you know, Ham, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Shemites, the Hamites, Japhites. They moved throughout. It tells us where they went in the globe. And... These names that we're reading here are the names of their children and grandchildren. So 
you can know who these nations are. So Gog is this, is this prince. He's the leader of, we're going to find, Russia. And um, Magog is northern Russia, which includes Moscow. And that's where this prince of Gog is. Who is this prince of Gog? Well, I, I think it's, it very well could be Vladimir Putin. No, really. I, I do because, I mean, think about it. For most of my young years, lifetime, up, in fact, we were married and had children, it was the USSR, United Soviet Socialist Republic. And then the wall came down in, in East Germany and Russia, you know, became Russia again. Pretty amazing. And when, they, when, when the Soviet Union collapsed, they became a democracy. I mean, Gorbachev and, and all those others, they were elected to the presidency. But now you have a dictator again. You know, he supposedly is elected, but he's, he's the only one running. And, um, but, I mean, you, you, have, you have a dictator in Vladimir Putin, and just the power he has, he very well could be the one. Rosh are the ancient Samaritans known as Rusa, and they're southwestern Russia. A lot of these names are, if you take the ancient location, and put it on today's map, um, they include more than one country. And so that's why I'm sharing this. So uh, Mishash is uh, ancient um, Misak, which is part of modern-day Turkey. Tubal is likely ancient Tuboa in uh, Cappadocia, which includes part of Turkey, Iran, all of Iran, and uh, southern Russia. Persia is modern-day Iran. In fact, it wasn't until 1935 that Persia changed its name to Iran. Ethiopia is actually Kush in the original language, and it's modern-day Sudan, and uh, also some parts of Ethiopia. Libya is ancient Put, which is west of Egypt, it tells us. Gomer is today central and western Turkey. Now, the thing that's interesting that all the names mentioned in this chapter, the names that come to the forefront of our vision as we're looking at it, are Russia, Iran, Turkey, and Sudan, right? Those are the ones that seem to come to the forefront. Now, think about it. Three of these nations, and soon four of these nations, are going to be in Syria. Guess where Syria is? It's the northern mountains of Israel, on the mountains of Israel, they were coming, just as prophesied, just as we're reading here. And, um, but Syria, Damascus itself, will be destroyed. It'll become a heap of ruin. If you take notes, that's Isaiah 17.1. They'll become a heap of ruin. Won't even exist anymore. Syria is just being used right now as a gathering place for all these troops that are going to come against Israel. Now... What nations are present in Syria right now? Russia, Iran, Turkey, and the Sudan is very quickly going to be sending troops. Russia, of course, is holding up Syria's Bashar Assad's government right now. We all know that, right? And Russia's ambassador to Iran made this statement. Iran's presence in Syria is legitimate. That's the statement they made. Turkey is in Syria to fight the Kurds. And the Turkey president, Erdogan, he made the following statement. Turkey um, will delay operations against Kurdish forces until the U.S. gets out of Syria. Now, I received news from Amir Sarfati, and he's our guide when we go to Israel. He's a lieutenant colonel in the Israeli army. He's part of the, their intelligence gathering group. And I, anyway, he sent out this morning that the uh, um, Turks are right on the Syrian border right now. They're massing troops on the Syrian border. Just today, that was the news. Now, Sudan's president, which is Omar Arbashar, it's funny, you know, his last name's like the first name of the Syrian president, uh, last Sunday became the first Arab League leader to visit Syria since the Civil War erupted nearly eight years ago, and he made a promise to send troops. So now you have all four of those countries mentioned in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 38 are preparing to go into Syria. Now, that itself would be stunning enough 
you know, these four nations being in Syria. But last Tuesday, it was unexpectedly announced that the U.S. was pulling all troops, all of its troops out of Syria and also parts of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, but pulling, pulling all of its troops out of Syria as quickly as possible. Now, Defense Secretary Mathis, he resigned over that decision. And the president's special envoy to defeat ISIS in Syria, he resigned over that decision. And so the only one who approved the decision openly, in fact, you can go on YouTube and, and see him making the comments, was Vladimir Putin. He, he thinks this is the right decision. He thinks it's great. Now, the thing we have to understand is that um, even Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's been such a supporter of Trump, he's completely flabbergasted and against this. It's like all these guys were blindsided about this decision. Now, the thing is, we might be thinking, how could he do something like that? I mean, he recognized Jerusalem as their capital. He seems to be such a friend of Israel. How could he just pull out? We have to understand prophecy is prophecy, and it's going to be fulfilled. We have to realize things aren't going to get better. They're going to get worse. Jesus is coming back for his church. That's the promise we have. And therefore, I don't know how anyone, especially considering we're pulling out of Syria. Syria is all set to harbor these four nations, to gather them together to organize to come against Israel. They're right on the mountains north of Israel, just as Ezekiel 38 said. How can you read that and say it's a coincidence? I mean, there's no way you could. Now, here's another interesting thing. The Arab nations of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and the Arab Emeritus have a working relationship with Israel. They're not part of this group that wants to come against Israel. In fact, in the portion we just read in Ezekiel 38 where it talks about Sheba and Dedan, that is modern-day Saudi Arabia. And Israel has met with the, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. They have good dealings with them. And they're the ones that are saying to Russia, to Turkey, and um, uh, Iran, and, and to um, uh, Kush, why are you coming again? Why are you doing that? They're, they're opposed to it, in other words. Now, Jordan, of course, is a made-up country. Did you know that? It's just a made-up country. And in fact, what they do is they, they're a modern country that occupy ancient lands, the land of the Heshemites. The Heshemite dynasty. They occupy that land. They're a made-up country. Now, here's what's interesting about Jordan. Stay with me and pay attention. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting about Jordan having good relations with Israel. They control the Temple Mount. After Israel took Jerusalem in 1967, in the Six-Day War, Moshe Dayan gave control of the Temple Mount back to Jordan. Now, Jordan would never dare allow the Jews to build their temple on the Temple Mount, would they? Because they would receive so much hostility from other Arab nations. Correct? Okay. Two weeks ago, Israel dedicated its third temple altar. They did not receive permission to do animal sacrifice, but they dedicated their third temple altar. For the first time in nearly 2,000 years, they have appointed a high priest. I mean, do you understand how absolutely amazing that is? They're getting, they're getting ready. So think about this. All these hostile, you know, Muslim nations come against Israel, and what we just read in Ezekiel 38, he destroys them. He wipes them out. And if we get into Ezekiel 39, there's even more that happens, but I won't do that right now. But he wipes those nations out. So if all these hostile Arab nations are gone, they're decimated, they're gone. God destroys them, and it says, they will know it's me, they'll know it's God. Now Jordan doesn't have any of these hostile nations giving them a hard time. So you could see how Jordan would say to Israel, let's have a peace treaty. Go ahead and build your temple on the Temple Mount. 
we'll keep you know, the Dome of the Rock and the Elas Mosque, but you can build your temple next to it. Now, what's interesting is President Trump has promised to introduce a peace plan very shortly. He calls it the deal of the century, something like that. What if he really has a peace plan that's going to be received? What if he really does? And maybe pulling out of Syria was part of it. I don't know. You know, I just... But all I know is all the cards are in play right now, ready for everything to happen. And so when God destroys those on the mountains of Israel, all those armies that are coming against Israel, now Jordan's free to say, hey, let's live together. You build the temple, and we'll have our Osmos and uh, the Dome of the Rock. And why I think this is important is in Ezekiel 42.20, it says this. And he's talking about measure. Now, 38, you know, we're in 42 now. It's the new temple. It's the third temple that's being talked about in Ezekiel uh, 42.20. He measured it by um, the four sides. Uh, it had a wall, uh, I'm sorry, it had a wall round about 500 reeds long and 500 broad. Listen, to make a separation between the sanctuary and the profane place. What would the profane place be to the third temple, to the Jews? The paganism of Islam. And so there you have, you know, the Dome of the Rock and the Lost Mosque are still there. But uh, there's a peace treaty between Jordan and Israel. Remember, Jordan controls the temple. Jordan is not in this league coming against Israel. In fact, they're saying, why are you coming against Israel? They make a peace treaty with Israel. Israel builds their third temple just where they planned on it being built. In fact, when we were there, we saw the wall that was there during the, um, who, whose time was it? Solomon's time. But they're going to be right there. I mean, everything is set into play. And so what does all this mean to us? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, it says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, maybe this is that peace treaty, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now it's talking about, prior to this, it was talking about them and they. In verse 4, it's talking about we as believers. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet and the hope of salvation. Sounds like the armor of God, doesn't it? Verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, His wrath. He did not appoint us to that, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wow. You see, the first creation is under judgment, right? Since the fall. But the Bible says we're a new creation. And we're not under judgment. But we're destined to salvation. Not only the salvation of our souls, but our salvation from God's destruction upon this planet, upon this earth. But the thing is, the only way anyone can escape is by being born again. You know, something I used to say years ago, I haven't done it for a long time, and they used to call it the, the three C's. And anyone who comes to the Lord, who's born again, has to go through the three C's. The first C is being convicted. And I think a lot of people are convicted. There's no doubt they're sinners. They realize they've got... A lot of people are convicted. Then you have to be convinced. And many people, through studying Scripture and, and maybe historical accounts and so forth, they, they get convinced that Jesus was real. And that he really did all those things that the Bible says. But then the third C is being converted, being changed, being a new creation in Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand, if we want to go in the rapture, if we want to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, we have to be saved. We have to be born again. And it's the personal choice we have to make. You have to be convinced. 
You have to, I mean, convicted of your sin, you have to be convinced Jesus is the way, but then you've got to accept Jesus is the way and receive him into your heart and be converted. And so anyone who wants to be raptured has to be born again. And so my encouragement to you this morning is if you're not born again, if you're not saved, give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. If you are a believer but you've been struggling, run to the Lord. If you've been backsliding, run to the Lord. And I've instructed Chuck, he's going to play one last song we're going to listen to. And the name of the song is, Are You Ready? And while we're singing this song, I'm going to sit down here by my wife. If anyone wants to come forward to receive Jesus Christ or to be prayed with, you come on forward. I'd be more than happy to do that. Pastor Frank Jr. will come down and join us and any of the elders who would like to as well. And uh, no pressure, you know, I don't do that. But if you really feel the Lord leading you, do that. But whether you come forward or not, listen to the words of this song and remember Jesus Christ is coming soon and very soon. Brother, and I'll pray at the end. Can't you see
My question is simple. Are you ready? Are you ready? Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for the fact that salvation is free. There's nothing we have to do to earn it. Just receive it. And then we're ready. We're ready for you to come and take us out of this world, whether it be at death or whether it be at your coming. And we thank you for your word and for the promises we have in it. And I ask, Father, that we not only would be sober, but we'd also be joyous because it might be bad news for the world, but it's good news for us. We're going to be with Jesus. All of our tears, all of our sorrow will be wiped away. Only thing, the only thing that we'll be doing is worshiping and loving and praising you together with those that we love. So now, Father, come and minister your Holy Spirit and word to our hearts and cause us, Father, not only to be ready, but to encourage others to be ready as well. And I pray all this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you, my friends.